right. Okay, we can start there here. Good deal. All right. We all vowed we weren't starting until you got here. Good to be with you. Open your Bibles up to the book of... Revelation chapter 1. <laughs> yeah. Good to see you. Good to be here with you. Well, I want to talk to you about a uh, new study that we've been involved in. Verses uh, 9 down through verse 20 of chapter 1, Revelation is an, just an extraordinary passage of Scripture. It's, uh, of course, falls within the first chapter of Revelation, which is an introductory uh, section. Everything going on within the first chapter is for the sake of introducing. So he's introducing to us the prophecy. Which means this is the main thrust. Are you with me? Really important. This is the main thrust of the prophecy. So all the themes that he's talking about, all the themes that he's developing, uh, is going to be strewn throughout the prophecy. Now, uh, specifically in our, in our uh, section, what we've been looking at this week, verses 9 down through verse 20 of the first chapter, this is the Patmos section. This is where Jesus physically comes to him in some kind of a vision kind of a deal, okay? He physically comes to him and gives him this call of writing down everything that he sees, okay? It's the prophecy itself. John turns around, uh, not knowing <coughs> that it's Jesus at first, but he turns around to see who's speaking to him. And verses 12 down through verse uh, 16 is the description of Jesus, now this is, again, introduction stuff. So this, is, this has been really helpful for me. The way in which Jesus is presented in the first chapter is going to be how he interacts with the church and how he interacts with the world uh, throughout the book of Revelation. Let me give you an example of that. All of the, all of the language in verses 12 down through verse 16 uh, is used specifically to the church. I mean, he's talked about having uh, eyes like blazing fire. Well, if you look at the church of Thyatira, in chapter 2, verse 18, he introduces himself as the one who has eyes like blazing fire. Now, back in our uh, verses, uh, for instance, verse 15, his feet were like polished bronze. Again, to the church in Thyatira, he has feet like polished bronze. Uh, to the church in Pergamum, verse uh, 12, he says, he is the one with the sharp double-edged sword. That's how he speaks to Pergamum. Well, if you go back into verse 16, he holds the seven stars in his right hand and has a sharp double-edged sword, uh, double sword extending out of his mouth. So see, this is just introduction stuff. Jesus is being introduced. This is the Jesus that's interacting in the book of Revelation. He's being introduced to us here. Now... The reason I'm stressing that for you is tonight we will look in verse 16, which is the latter part of this introduction of Jesus. We've walked through some of this, verses 12 and 13. He's the Son of Man, the priestly figure who ministers to us. He's able to minister to us because He's one of us. He's the Son of Man. Uh, we, look, walked, we didn't get to look at it this week, but verses 14 and 15 cover His uh, head and hair, His eyes, His feet, and His voice. And we have all uh, studies on that and, and just aspects of his person that's being highlighted. Verse 16, there are three things that he points out to us. Okay, The first part of verse 16, he talks about seven stars in his right hand. And we're not going to look at that tonight. Okay, What we are going to look, look at is that he has a sharp, double-edged sword that's extending out of his mouth. 
Again, this is an introduction of the Jesus that's going to be interacting throughout with the church and with the world throughout the book of Revelation. Okay? He has a sharp double-edged sword. Now, it isn't difficult to tell that when you uh, look at this word, sharp double-edged sword, this statement, as it's, as it's talked about throughout the book of Revelation, as it's talked about throughout the New Testament, we're obviously dealing with judgment here. Okay? We're dealing with judgment. This sharp double-edged sword has to do with judgment. So there is a... Now hear this. There is a judgment aspect going on in the book of Revelation. Okay? Literally, there is judgment that is taking place and that is going to take place. But I want to clarify that to you because it seems like that gets turned around and twisted uh, in our world. Okay? It gets turned around and twisted in our world. Perfect example of this. Uh, we were in a Chattanooga, and uh, I went to one of these clothing stores. Uh, I've been putting on weight over the last couple of years. Not bad weight, praise the Lord. And uh, my shirts aren't fitting me quite as well. So I go and find, and it's great, you're in a different town every week, so you get to go look at all the deals. And uh, in every single town you go to, you look at the latest deal. And uh, so I went to this one store and I was uh, looking at some of their good deals and got some really good deals on a couple shirts. So I was pretty happy about it. Just thought you might want to know that. And uh, I'm paying for them at the checkout line. And this lady is, says, these are really nice shirts. And I said, thank you. I said, I'm going to preach in them. She says, you're a preacher? I was like, yeah. And the first thing she said was, you're kind of young for a preacher. I was like, yeah, that's what they all say. And she goes, uh, that's good. And so you're preaching this week? I said, yeah, I travel. I told her the story how I travel all year around my family and we're in town this week and we're preaching at a revival. And she looks right at me and she goes, give them hell. <laughs> I was like, okay, here's my money. I'll take my shirts and go. And she goes, no, literally. They need to know about hell. And if they don't live right, they're going there. And I said, okay, give me my shirts. And uh, I paid for them and left. You understand, that is a perspective on the message of Christianity that's out there in our world. See, it's about judgment. And she said, oh, I'm a Christian. I go to church every week. And, and she, see, it's this idea of judgment that God is just waiting to flip you into the abyss. See, he's just waiting. I mean, hey, you mess up. You're going flames okay you understand that's i have not and just 100 percent honesty i have not run into that in the scripture okay i have not run into that in the scripture what i run into both now get this both in the new testament and old testament but also and it's really muddled in the old testament because you have a progressive revelation you have a very uh primitive people that do not have the inspiration of the Holy Spirit like you and I have the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But it's prevalent in the New Testament and also in the book of Revelation that we're dealing with the God of love. And you'd say, what do you mean? That the whole motivation, this is so significant, the whole motivation of God in our life is love. The, I'm, the reason He's after us is because He loves us. I mean, seriously. So and, and, and so people automatically ask, okay, well, if God loves me, then how do you deal with hell? See, what's hell all about? Well, first off, biblically, we know, biblically, we know, it's stated plainly that hell was not created for you and I. And you were not to go there. Hell was created for the devil and his angels. You weren't to go there. In fact, he's done everything so you don't have to go there. 
And I'm absolutely convinced that he's going to pressure you. He's going to pressure you all the way. And you can say no to him and you can fight him, but he is like a stalker. <laughs> he's not going to let you go. And if you go in there, he's going to weep. He'll be broken because that was not... He's prepared a place for you. In fact, Paul tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He says openly in the book of... I was looking at this tonight. Passage. I like how the, uh, the, the, my translation words it in the book of Galatians. He says, For the whole law, this is Old Testament law, the whole law can be summed up in a single commandment. Namely, you must love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, that's absolute selfless love. So, so when we're talking about judgment, now hear me, the book of Revelation has judgment in it. Okay, But when we're talking about judgment... We're not talking about a God that doesn't like us. We're not talking about a God that's just, well, hey, he's going to lose his temper if we don't serve him. If we're not going to be his servants and subjects, he's going to smash us. That's not, that's not the biblical perspective of judgment. Okay? Judgment is the direct result of not responding to his love. Which is going to be really difficult. Now, you would say, that's going on in the book of Revelation? <laughs> yes! Like really strong. For instance, look with me at Revelation chapter 1. In chapter 1, again, introduction. So basically, he's introducing what's going to be going, out, going on throughout the entire book of Revelation. And in chapter 1, uh, of course, you have the prologue, the first three verses. And then you move into the prologue. And in verses 4 and 5a, you have a description of our one God in three persons. This is God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That language is not used there. Uh, Jesus is used there and the Holy Spirit is used there. The Father is not used, but it's our, th it's our one God in three persons. And it's, it's literally who He is that's being described. Okay? Then in verse 5b, it's in response, John praises in response to this God that is seeking to save us. Okay? It's probably the best I can do in a statement. But in verse 5b, he begins with this, the beginning of the praise section. In the NIV, that's going to be an independent section beginning in verse 5b, extending down through verse 8. Listen to what he says. He says, to the one who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his own blood. And literally, in my translation, the New, uh, the New English translation, it says, and the one who has set us free at the cost of his own blood and appointed us to be a kingdom of priests. What's the motivation? He loves us. Man, He loves us. So you have to interpret. You understand? See, you have to interpret the entire book of Revelation. I believe this. Even down to some of the most difficult passages in the, in the book of Revelation, you have to understand it. It's in the introduction. You can't get away from this. Okay? You have to understand it from a God who loves you. Let me give you one other example of this before we begin to dig into some specifics. In Revelation chapter 9, and I'm going to have you moving around just a little bit. Uh, and actually, Revelation chapter uh, 8, you have the seventh seal. Beginning chapter 6, you have these seals that are undone, which are the unfolding of these events in the end times. In chapter 8, you have the seventh seal, which is plucked. Uh, and of course, it's going to unleash a series of judgments and proclamations. And they uh, are, are basically these trumpets uh, that are sounded off. And when they are sounded off, 
you have these judgments that fall upon the earth. And I won't go through all of them, but they begin at the, at the seventh uh, seal in chapter 8 and verses 5, verse 7, verse 8, verse 10, verse 12. Uh, just you go down and it's whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, you have all of this, these judgments. You do. You walk out of those verses going, whoa, man, wow. I mean, it's heavy stuff. I'm talking pain. I'm talking pressure. And you would say, wow, he's, he's doing that stuff? Oh, you've got scorpions. You've got sc- scorpions that are popping up. And, and you've got, uh, I mean, he describes them in some places. For instance, go down in chapter 9, verse 7. Let's read a little bit of this. Now the locust that he unleashes on the ungodly... Looked like horses equipped for battle. On their heads were something like crowns similar to gold. And their faces like the men's faces. They had hair like woman's hair. And their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like iron, uh, iron breastplate. And the sound of their wings was like the noise of many horses drawn, uh, dr- horse-drawn chariots charging into battle. They had tails and stingers like scorpions, and their ability to injure people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the head of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon. And that's just the first woe, it says in verse 12. And you have all of these kind of inflicting kind of judgments. And you would say, man, that's how God loves us? Yeah. He's like, how do you justify that? Oh, look at this. Go down with me to verse 20. Go down with me to verse 20. And you have some other things that are talking about, and, and people are just being pressured and pressured and pressured. Verse 20. The rest of humanity who had not been killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. Which tells you, well, the rest of them still did not repent. Well, what's the motivation in God doing all this? So that they would repent. Does God pressure you? Absolutely He pressures you. Does He put difficult circumstances in your path? Absolutely. Why? Because He loves you. In fact, this is illustrated throughout the New Testament of the father who disciplines his children. Why? Because He loves them. And uh, CJ has... (laughs) CJ, he's so funny. He's such a good kid. Um, I spanked him a while back. And in this particular instance, I was wrong. But... uh, and I had to apologize to him, but um, he was acting inappropriately toward uh, one of the nursery workers. And I took him in the bathroom and spanked him. You know, not brutal, but don't turn me in or anything. But, uh, you know, I spanked his butt and uh, we put him in the car and he didn't cry much. But we're on the way, or I took him back to the motorhome is what it was. And uh, he's sitting there and I'm telling Corinna what happened. And I hear him say, I thought you were my best friend. <laughs> or best buddies. I thought you were my best buddy. <laughs> of course, I'm trying not to laugh. Crit is hysterical, you know, laughing, hiding her face. And I turn around, I go sit down, and I said, Hey, the reason I'm, I am your best buddy, or the reason I spank you is because I am your best buddy. And I love you, and I'm training you up, and you have to know boundaries. And see, from a biblical perspective, the person that does not, see, the person that does not discipline their child does not love them. Does not love them. So, the, and again, so what I'm trying to impress upon you as we begin to look at judgment in the book of Revelation, because an aspect of Jesus is a sharp, double-edged sword that protrudes out of his mouth, is that there is such a thing as judgment, okay? But it is a judgment that comes as a direct result of the love of God in our life. Is he going to press you, okay? Is he going to put difficult circumstances in your life, okay? I use the illustration that I, I like for God to speak to me. And uh, in fact, I've always been the one that's prayed to hear the still, small voice. 
you know. Uh, I'm more of a two by four up the side of the head kind of a person with God speaking to me. He has to just whack me upside the head. I'd like to be the person that hears the still, uh, still small voice, but I'm the one that he really has to get my attention. Because I seem to, I'm, I'm so hard-headed. I'm so hard-headed, so I'm soft-hearted, I believe, but I'm hard-headed on, on certain things. Okay? But the reason he does that is because he loves me. Okay? Revelation chapter 1. Now, so what we're dealing with when we get into the book of Revelation is, is, the, is the Savior of our life, this God of love, okay, who out of his mouth has a sharp, double-edged sword. Now, if you begin to go through the New Testament, and this is rather important, but if you begin to go through the New Testament and you begin to look for this sword kind of language, you're going to find it everywhere, okay? Because swords in their day were, were used. In fact, all throughout the Bible, you're going to have all kinds of um, scenarios and, and scenes uh, that you're going to have to sift through in the Bible that has to do with battle, okay? uh, which in, entails swords. And there's a variety of kinds of swords. I found that not only Jews had swords, but of course the Romans had swords. There were swords that were used for attacking, for defending. Um, for, there was even sacred kinds of daggers and swords, which is the same word that's used in sacrifices. So this idea of the sword is used everywhere all over the New, uh, New Testament and the Old Testament. However, when we're dealing in our passage with a sharp, double-edged sword, it's a specific kind of sword. Okay? In Hebrews, and you don't have to turn here, but in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, you understand that the, it talks about the word of God is a sword. Well, that word is different than our word, and that actually is a dagger kind of a deal, okay? A dagger kind of a deal. In Luke chapter 2, verse 35, uh, Jesus, or, um, Zechariah, I believe, talks to Mary, this is the passage, that her heart will be pierced by a sword, okay? Pain, okay? That's a different kind of a sword than our passage. Our passage, literally, Revelation chapter 1 verse 16, is the, is the, it's a war kind of weapon. It's not a dagger that you carry on your side that has multiple kind of, it's not a, a enclosed kind of a weapon that you would use in close compact. This is the big one. You ever seen Conan with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger? Remember that? You ever look at Conan and go, one day, one day, one day. Not you ladies, but you men maybe. But uh, Conan has this big sword. He trains the big wood piece for a while and then he moves to the sword. That's this kind of a weapon. I mean, it's just this huge, bulky, slaying, you cannot avoid being slain kind of a weapon. See, that's the sword that's used. This is the sword that's used in our passage. When you go into the book of Revelation, see, and Jesus specifically in Revelation chapter 19, he pursues upon his enemies. Okay, he, he pursues them. He comes upon them with the entire host of heaven and he has this sword and he's literally slaying them. But hear this. It's the sword that comes out of his mouth. Okay? And it's directly equated on him is he is the word of God. So literally, this sword, this, this judgment that's coming on the people is a direct result of the word of God that comes out of his mouth. You say, well, how, how does that work? It doesn't really even make sense to me. That literally this slaying, that would, this judgment that's coming out of his mouth that just pins men to the wall, it's, it's his word? Absolutely, it's his word. Here's the first passage I want you to look at, look at with me. Go back. Uh, to John chapter 3. And the reason we're going back to John chapter 3 is because I believe, personally, uh, out of all the passages in the New Testament, this one is the, is the plainest. It's in the conversation that uh, Jesus is having with Nicodemus. 
Nicodemus has come because of the events that took place in the temple in verses uh, or in chapter two, uh, verses twelve through the end of the chapter, and uh, chapter. Uh, uh, three, the first 21 verses is this dialogue Jesus is having with Nicodemus over what happened. Well, he's talking about a number of things, but in the middle of the chapter, he talks about the motivation of God in our salvation. Again, it's love. It's love. That's what he says. But listen to this. In this conversation, he's talking about condemnation. This is so neat to me. You cannot talk about the love of God without the judgment of God. That is a strange kind of a deal to some. Okay, It was difficult to think through. But you cannot talk about the love of God without the judgment of God. He begins in verse 16 and he says, For this is the way God loves the world. He gave His one and only Son. I'm going to read it in the NIV. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. In other words, hey... If you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to perish. Now get this. It's not like, hey, if you don't serve me, this is not the context in which this verse is written. If you don't serve me, I'm going to send you to hell. Okay? If you just read verse 16 and you do not read verses 17 and 18, you're going to miss what he's saying in this verse. Look at verse 17. The next verse. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn. That's our word. That's our concept in the book of Revelation. Judgment. That's what the sword is bringing. He did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Now notice when He says the world, He's talking about the ungodly. The people in the book of Revelation that are waging war, that are persecuting the church, the followers of the Antichrist, these horrible people that are doing horrible things. And that's something to grapple with. That's something you're going to have to come to grips with. The human traffickers of our day... That's, Karen and I have talked about this, of all the things that we see in our time. I mean, there's horrible things taking place, but human trafficking is just, I mean, it's just horrible. I mean, it started back in the slave trade, back in the, in the days when slavery was still allowed to take place. I mean, they would go and kidnap people from Africa, and, I mean, human trafficking. That's where it started. It, obviously, it started way back in the Roman days, but here in the, in, in the United States, it was introduced. And, and now, it's just a, it's, it's a despicable, God loves them. And the idea of judgment is not going to come and, and, and whack off their heads. <laughs> you know, get him, God! You know, kind of this vengeful kind of, he's going to unleash his anger on him. That's man kind of judgment. That's not God kind of judgment. See, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So in other words, the whole motivation of Jesus coming to die on a cross, as Paul says, is before we were saved, while we were still the world, he loved us. And the whole motivation... Of God moving in our life is because He loves us. He didn't come to condemn us. He comes to save us. And how does He save us? It's the speaking through. It's the speaking of His Word. It's the revelation of, of the will that He has for us. He says it in verse 17. He continues down into verse 18. And He says, Whoever believes in Him, that's a response. So whoever believes in Him literally leaves condemnation. So I believe in Jesus. I believe everything that you have for me. I believe in who you are and that I wasn't intended to live like this and I respond to you. So whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe, they stand condemned already. Because He's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So what does this mean? That literally, hey, in 1995, Jeremiah Bullock stood condemned. I stood absolutely condemned. Now, here's, here's another thing. 
And I don't want to drag you through the Bible, but I think you're going to need to see this. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Because this is the only way I can really describe this to you. Okay? The idea of being, uh, and again, this is just how I studied this whole deal and judgment, is the idea is from Revelation, and I mean in John and the New Testament, is that God comes to me and uh, I'm condemned. That's the real deal message. God's not waiting to send me into hell. He's not mad at me. He's not going, well, I hope he doesn't surrender to me so I can take my you know, anger out on him. And See, it's not that kind. He's not waiting to just lop off our heads. He loves us. He hates what we're doing. He hates sin in our lives. He hates the destruction that's going on. So he sent his one and only son, the cost of his own blood, literally at saving my life. It was costing him something. So he comes to save me. Okay? Because I stand condemned. Now that's where I had to wrestle with. I stood condemned. Well, why is it that I stand condemned? Because reality is, is when a baby is born, that baby, okay, under the prevenient grace we believe, okay, because it didn't have a choice and it can't like add two plus two yet, okay, there come a time when it can respond. But that baby, literally, you can see it. It's self-bent. It's, it's, it has the seed of sin within it. Okay? We all have that. We stand condemned okay, from birth. And, I, and you have to wrestle with that. Why? How did that happen? And, and why do I stand condemned? And See, what did I ever do? Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, the deal was, is that God creates man. In Genesis chapter 1, you have the creation event. God goes through and He's creating everything. And it's really significant. But He comes down to verse 26. And it's like God gets this idea. And he says, I know what we can do. We created all this stuff. Let's, we created animals and all that kind of stuff. But hey, I got an idea. Let's create man. It says in verse 26. Look at verse 26 with me. And then we're going to go right to verse 27. Then God says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Now, for the longest time, I misunderstood image and likeness. Okay, I understood that. I grew up predominantly, I did not grow up in, in like your culture. Okay? I grew up in the farm area of Indiana. I, for the first 18 years of my life, the only people I saw were white people. Okay? I wasn't prejudiced. I didn't have the chance not to be prejudiced. Okay? I grew up in good old white middle America. And then I started leaving you know, the farm area and of course there were other nationalities. But you know, I remember I, literally when we were 12 and 13 years old going out to Arizona and we saw Native Americans and I was like, wow, <laughs> they don't wear like bows and arrows and stuff. I was like, that's weird because I'd only read about them in books and don't look at me like that. It's Indiana. That's, that's how I was raised. And See, I grew up with this idea of image. This was shocking for me. When I went to college, well, first I have to say, when I, I grew up with this idea of image, okay, that I was created in His image. What does that mean? Well, God is then is just like me because I'm created in His image. He's just a 700-foot-tall white guy. That's what it is. Seriously, we had a picture of Jesus on our wall. He was a white guy with blue hair, or blue hair, blue eyes and long hair. He was a white guy with blue eyes and long blonde hair. That's who Jesus was. So I, went to, I, got, I graduated high school and I went to the Marine Corps. And I roomed with this uh, uh, black guy named William. Neat guy. And I was, in, I was in California, so I didn't get to come home very often. So I would just go to his house. His parents lived down in San Diego. And I would go to his house for all the, um, all the uh, like holidays and stuff. We had extended weekends and I would go there. But his mom, strict Southern Baptist, make us go to church. 
And I remember the first time I went to their house, I was the only white guy in the house. I was the only white guy in the neighborhood, okay, <laughs> when I went down there, okay? And I remember walking in for the first time, and uh, I met mom, and they said hello to me, and we were, he and I were really good friends, and, and we went in, we're talking, and uh, they said, well, come on in the kitchen. And I'm starting to walk in the kitchen, and I see right above the door frame uh, going into the kitchen, there was a picture of the Last Supper scene. But they weren't white. And I remember stopping going. And I said, William, come here. He said, yeah. And I said, what is that? He goes, that's called the Last Supper scene. I said, I know what it's called. I said, Jesus wasn't a black guy. He's a white guy. Come on, man. But it was hysterical. We got this big old discussion on this. He was image. Every single culture has that. I've had a chance to preach in Philippines. You go to the Philippines and look, they've got a little Filipino Jesus up on their wall. Okay? And I'm perfectly fine with that. Because Jesus wasn't white, by the way. He was Jewish, you understand? Okay? Okay? So color is not the issue. But it was a mentality I had. Okay? Are you with me? I'm not sure if you're offended or not. Some of you have no facial expression. Okay? The point that I'm trying to get across to you is, is that there's an idea of image that we have that's not... All the language that he uses, uses here is not physical language. It's not physical language. Listen to what he says. It's all, it all has to do with relational capacity. Okay? You and I have an opportunity for relationship with God that none other of his creation has. Which is remarkable. See, he makes all the bird and the fish and, the, and all of these kinds of deal... But see, they don't have what you and I have. God says, I've got an idea. Let's create a group of people. Let's create a creation that's never been done before. And let's relate to them the way we relate to each other. He says, listen to what he says. Then God says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness and let them rule. See, previous to this, no one ruled except for God. God is a ruling kind of a deal. Stay with me. God is a ruling kind of a thing. See, hey, animals don't rule. You and I rule. So you and I were literally invited into a relational capacity and authority that previously was only known to God. Now, go into verse 27. Rule over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27. So God created man in His image, in His own image, in the image of God He created him, male and female. He created them. So it's not like man was created in the image of God and then our wives are created in our image so we can boss them around. <laughs> That's some other Bible you're reading. Okay? Male and female were created in the image of God. In other words, you and I were created with the capacity to know Him and walk with Him. And... That's remarkable. Now that dispels all kinds of problems you will ever have to face. A few years ago, uh, a person from a college that I went to wrote a book. I'm not going to go into the details of it. But it, it, a professor did this, PhD. And in the book, he did some studies on genetics and discovered that there was a certain branch of apes whose DNA was actually closer to our DNA than it was its own cousins. Which, of course, he was on like CNN or something like that. And I mean, he got, it was huge, big deal. I mean, he almost got fired. He may have gotten fired, I don't know, but it was this big old deal that took place and went on and people went crazy because he was suggesting that maybe we came from apes. And I, I just, I walked around in confusion, okay? I walked around in confusion. 
Because apes were not, biblically, apes were not created in the image of God. We were. Okay, that settles it. And on the other hand, you and I have all looked at people and thought, hey, you know, <laughs> genetically, whoa, hey, wow. Take the, you know, I, evangelistic jokes, I'm just kidding. But the, the point is, is that, hey, apes were not created in his image. You and I were. An ape cannot have, I don't care what the DNA says, an ape cannot have the relationship with God that you and I can have. Intimacy and oneness. This is how God created you and I. Now, it's important because you go down, uh, and this is expanded. You understand that there's two creation accounts. Chapter 1, then there's also chapter 2, verse 4. And I only want to look at part of this, uh, brother. If you go down to verse 15. In verse 15 of chapter 2, uh, he deals with, just we're going to jump from verse 15 and then down to verse 19. But in verse 15 it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden, now get this, to work it and take care of it. Now, now again, focus with me on this real quick. Because God creates man. This is his point for our life. This is how he created Adam. Adam will fall from this. He will abandon this. But Jesus will come, as the second Adam, Paul says, and he will pick it up and say, Hey, I'm going back the way God created us. Jesus is our way. Okay? So when we're reading this, this is how you and I are to be. We were created to be in oneness and intimacy. And, and so Adam was put in the garden to work it and take care of it. Now this is not work it and take care of it, kind of like get up in the morning, ugh, can't wait for vacation. <laughs> okay? Man, my boss is such a dragon. Not that kind of work it and take care of it. This is operating out of the resource and the oneness of God and, and going down there and just, man, it's an incredible. Now it's interesting. Go down to verse 19. This is so neat. In verse 19, I think it's verse 19. Yeah, this is it. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to man to see what he would name them. So it's interesting. Get this. God did not name. There's participation in this. Hey, God invited us into this. God did not name the animals. Adam did. In fact, Adam named himself and his wife. Called man and whoa, man. <laughs> no, woman. Man and woman. Now, you say, how, well, how, what does that have to do with being in the image of God and the likeness and the intimacy and the oneness and communication? Literally, you have God that's sitting around some couch and chair and love seat, uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eating popcorn and hanging out, having diet soda. And, uh, and, and hey, hey, God calls in and says, Adam, get in here. Hang out with us, man. What's going on? Well, we got this dilemma. we got all these animals and we need, to, we need to name them, but we want to include you in that. You can participate. What do you think? So he brings this goat in. It says, Adam, what do you think? What do you call this? Adam says, I'm thinking goat. And goat was its name. Now that's significant, folks, because you understand that God wants you to participate in the kingdom in that exact manner today. You are called to participate. He wants to use you. He has chosen not to bring this thing to pass without you. Which is incredible, man. You say, what do you mean? I have been chosen to participate in the ministry of my kids and my wife. I've chosen to be, literally, and that's vulnerability, you understand? Which that's what love is. Vulnerable. Because this is what can happen with love. And I participate with him in that. And, he, and, see, and you'd say, what do you mean by participate? Well, I decide what shows he watches. 
I decide what dolls she plays with. Seriously. I decide what they eat. See, participation with God. Do you, do you realize? Now hear me on this. Do you, do you sense the gravity in your creation? This is how you were created. Now listen to me, please. This is the Word of God. This is how you were created. Adam was created for this. He was created to participate in it. Now when Adam fell into sin, what sin was is... Now get this. Adam said, I'm not interested in participating with you anymore. I want to... I want, hey, I don't want to see the tree the way you see it. And sin. And you enter into a whole separate life. A whole separate life that's not dictated and determined by God's influence, but by, by my own. See, you go back, every single sin is determined that way. Lust. Lust is not love. See, lust is, I choose to see you not the way he does, I choose to see you the way that I do. I use you for my purposes. You, I do not look at you as someone who's created for God and his purposes, you become an object for me. And you were created for my use. That's sin. That's sin. Lying. I choose not to live by the standard of the truth. And who's the truth? He is the truth. In other words, I choose not to view my circumstances through truth, through Jesus, how He sees them. I choose to see them the way that I see them. Because my sight is better than God's sight. My understanding is greater than God's understanding. See, that's the whole argument that Job has with God. Can you run with horses, boy? You can't see the way that I see. You are trying to determine truth without my influence. So what Adam did is Adam stepped out of that intimate participation and intimacy and oneness with God and lives a life void of God. He stands condemned. What do you mean? God's going to send him to hell because of that? No. Adam has chose existence without God. And you know what existence without God is? Hell. That's existence without God. And so God sees where Adam is going in his race and says, Hey, you don't want to go there. I'm telling you. Then you don't want to go there. You don't want to be life without me. Because what happens in life without me? Human trafficking. Man using and exploiting one another and rape and pestilence and murder and lies and non-trusting and lock your motorhome up before you come to church. And See, that's, that's hell. So man is on a one-way track. Void, I don't need God. Turn on your television. Turn on, I don't need God. That's, what it's, that's, that's the big deal. Morals are not established based on Him. Morals are established based on what I view morals are, should be. That's why we're at the, the, the position that we're at in terms of murdering babies. Mom talked to me just a couple days ago. I probably shouldn't share this. Mom talked to me a couple days ago. Aunt Faye quit her job sometime in the past. Quit her job. Botched abortion. Baby came out alive. Took the baby, put it in a trash can. Wouldn't let her, wouldn't let her. Folks, this is legal in our country. Wouldn't let her touch it. Put the baby in a closet, it cried for an hour and a half. Finally died. She quit on the spot. Said, I didn't sign up for this. That is murder. No, it's not. It's not. That's not murder, folks. In our land. Why? Because morals and law is not established on the way God views, but it's established on terms of our law system. See, what sin is, is man destroying himself in our world. Period. 
And we're going, that's where man is going to. That's where man is driving at. That's a harsh reality. That's where man is going. Man's, John 3.16, God loves us. And He stands in our path and says, Hey, you don't have to go there. And His very, very word speaks. And when it speaks, it reveals. It reveals our condemnation. It reveals our judgment. Now that's going to make sense for us when you go back and look at the New Testament passage where literally we talk about Pharaoh and God hardening his heart. Well, how did God harden his heart? He revealed to him the, the depravity of his own life. And therefore, he chose rebellion against God. Now, the argument is, well, if God would have never come to him, he wouldn't have known his depravity. But God loves him too much to let him continue on in his depravity. See, God comes to Jeremiah. And in 1995, I could argue that my life was fine and dandy without Jesus until he poked his head in my life and revealed to the direction I was going. And I was revealed as a man standing in condemnation. And he speaks to me and says, Jeremiah, I love you. Man, I care about you. And look where you're headed. Look how you're treating your wife. Look how you're treating your kids. Look at how you act on the freeway when you drive. See, look at the perspective that you view men and women. See, look at yourself. And you come to His Word and you find out, Whoa, that's not how you called me to live. That's not how you view women. That's not how you determine truth. That's not how you handle finances. That's not how you treat your spouse. And I revealed that I was a man standing in judgment. Why? His mouth, because he spoke to me. So you have Jesus that literally has the word of God coming out of his mouth. And he approaches the nations and he approaches the church and he speaks truth to us. And we sit in a service and we stand and literally truth is revealed to us. And we see an area of our life that we don't look like to him. And if you and I don't respond to that, we remain in the condemnation in which he just revealed to us. Jesus, kingdom Christ, sword mouth. He has a sword coming out of his mouth. And he reveals truth to us, speaks it into our life, and says, hey, this is how I've created you to live. And you're not living that way. Um, when you begin to go through, and you begin to look at the, the book of Revelation, some of the language, some of the, how, how aggressive, how aggressive he deals with, I mean, literally, this is life and death issue to him. I mean, you have some horrific things that are taking place in the book of Revelation. How far would you go to save someone? How far would you go? I, I think of my kids. Chris and I talk about this. Our, one of our greatest fears. And I refuse to live in fear. Fear is not in God. Perfect love casts out all fear. But one of our greatest concerns and we, that we have to continually submit to God is that our kids would grow up and not love Jesus. I want them to love Jesus. What do you mean, Jeremiah? I want, you want them to come to church on Sunday? No. <laughs> well, then they were there on Sunday and Wednesday. Come on. Well, they don't smoke, drink, or chew, or both girls would do. <laughs> come on. They, were the right, they have good morals. Come on. What do you expect of your kids? To them being the living representation of our God on this earth. That's it. Nothing too much to ask. I want them to be the living demonstration of what an individual looks like filled with the Holy Spirit. So when they walk into the mall, it's the same thing as God walking into the mall. Because literally they are the housing of His person. That's what I want for them. 
I want them to stand in a, in a Starbucks. We're not getting to this this week, but in, in the, at the end of verse 16, Jesus' face shines in all its brilliance. You can go back to the book uh, of uh, Corinthians where Paul talks about Moses' face glowing. See, when you get in the presence of God, literally, physical glowing take place, you and I walk around with unveiled faces. <laughs> Just dumping Jesus wherever we go. We are a light in a dark world. We are the examples of, hey, this is what God intended. This is how men are supposed to look. I want to be the example of what a 36-year-old man looks like in my world. And I want to be a living annoyance to non-Christians. I want to be an abrasive piece of sandpaper. That when a guy cuts me off in traffic and tells me I'm number one, I lean out the window and go, Jesus loves you! <laughs> just oh, Maybe not that eccentric, but I mean, I just, I want to be that, man. I want to be that. Because I know that every time I choose not to respond to Jesus, what I'm choosing is Jesus, when it really comes down to it, when Jesus speaks to you in a service like this and you don't respond, what's really taking place is you're looking at him and saying, I like this area of my life without you, but out. I mean, really. Keep your nose out of this area of my business. I come to church on Sunday. Back off. You got 10% of my money. You want 12%? I'll give you 12%. I can swing it this way. And condemnation is produced. I stand in judgment. Not because he's waiting to send me to hell, but because I choose hell over him. And he didn't will it. Jesus, we love you this evening. Father, I, how, do, how do you respond? I, I've thought this week about this. and, and how, I, how, do you, how, do, how do you want me to respond to this truth tonight? How I've chosen to respond to it in the last day or so is just... I'm an absolute all of your love for me tonight. I'm, and some people may look at this as weird or odd, but I think you are giving me every excuse. You're almost like the mom that just makes every excuse for the, it's like the, makes every excuse for a kid possible. Anything she can do to get him in. See, it's the dad who sits on the porch when his son, youngest son, runs away with all of his wealth and squanders it. And he watches him as he's headed for destruction and he's sitting on the front porch waiting day after day after day after day. And anytime someone comes around and says, where's that no good son of yours? I, the father shows his fist and says, don't talk, about that. don't talk about my boy that way. Don't talk about my boy that way. I love him to pieces. And he's got so much potential and he's just a great kid and he's just deceived and he's, he's so bit inward. And, and as soon as the young boy steps into town, oh, the dad is out there sprinting down the road and embracing him and slipping rings of gold on his finger and coat around his neck and slaughtering the fatted calf and there's rejoicing and there's, he's home. And I believe you want me to succeed Jesus more than I want to succeed. I believe you're setting, and if I could just use kind of weird language that probably is not altogether true, I, I believe you're setting in, in heaven and you've searched my mind and know my heart's desire and just what my house would look like if I'll ever have a house. And You're decorating it the way I want it decorated. And 
big screen TV set up. You've got just, you're wanting to lavish so much goodness upon me. I can't even fathom. You're preparing a place for me and you've done everything that I'll ever need to do to respond. You've, done, you've made it every, I literally, the only way for me not to be saved is just to rebel against you and say, I don't want to be saved. I want to remain in judgment. Save us from that, Jesus. Just save me from that. I just... Would you become so huge in our sight tonight that we can't miss that? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. And this is probably a long shot, but... Because I think you're all great. Maybe you're not saved tonight. And don't tell me that, yeah, I come to church every Sunday. I'm not talking about being religious. Maybe you're not a Christian tonight. Maybe you don't know Him like that. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. That's the God you serve. Wants to reveal truth to you, how things really are in the world. His real purpose for you. He wants to reveal the real reason you don't have peace on a daily basis. He doesn't want you listening to the world. He doesn't want you listening to lies, to your emotions, to the television. He just he wants to develop intimacy with you. Maybe you've drawn away from that as a Christian. Maybe you've been distracted from that. I just or maybe you're just saying I want in on that. I I don't hey I respond in gratitude and I'm going to respond in earnestness that I want that at a deeper level. If you know the kind of relationship I want with God, I want nothing short than the relationship that Jesus had. I want to be able to drive down the road and have a conversation with my God. I want to know Him so close that when He hiccups, I feel it. If you don't have that, I'll give you an opportunity to respond tonight. So heads about and eyes are closed. Um, I'm going to give you an opportunity to stand up and, and come down and seek. We're going to close this in a few minutes, but I feel impressed to just give you the opportunity. If you're not a Christian tonight, that is what a Christian is. He doesn't want to send you to hell. You're deceived. You're heading in the wrong direction, man. You don't have to be like that anymore. Would you come? And in a few moments, we're going to close. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed and altars are open if you'd like to respond.